You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Here we are. I am Hugh Hendry. Um, I have the great honor of, um, I was going to say interviewing, of, of spending time, of spending uh, some some quality time with Richard Werner, author of The Princes of the Yen. Richard, thank you very much for um, joining us. And, and of course, thank you to, to Real Vision, to Raul and to the team uh, for making this, this happen. Um, as background, uh, Richard, your book, uh, The Princes of the Yen, had a had a profound impact on me back in 2012. So I guess we, it was what it just, I don't know if I was reading it before or afterwards, but um, something profoundly interesting had happened and rare had happened in the financial markets with the re-emergence of, of Abe San as prime minister uh, and his three arrow strategy to Oh yeah, to, to to start a revolution. Where 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 does Robin Hood now? But um, the the initial excitement at the end of two thousand and twelve, it was two thousand and twelve. Yeah, um, yeah, yes, had sparked yep. the equity market surged higher, and with yep. it volatility surged higher, and and so I was trying to construct uh, an overly complicated trade, and I became very fascinated on Japan and. And for me, it was completing a loop because when I began in my career in 1990, I was assigned um, to the Japanese equity department for a, an, uh, an investment house in Edinburgh. And, oh. and I, had to, I had to present on Japan for a year. So oh, wow. it's, it's been worth did, me. Um, did we ever meet? Because I did go to Edinburgh quite a lot when I was chief economist at Jardine Fleming Securities. So yeah, we we I, I guess we must have. Um, I was doing that uh, from particularly from ninety four, ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven, and I would always go to Edinburgh and have sessions there. Um, okay. So yeah, we wouldn't have uh, that wouldn't have happened because okay. um, the 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 model which was wonderful was a, a yearly rotation of the okay. the analysts so that you never became. It's a bit like the gendarmerie in Saint Bars. Uh, they come from the mainland. They're not answerable to the local politicians. And the six months they get kicked off just in case they they become you know contaminated. Um, so I I had moved on at that point. But um, okay, the, your book um, was then sacrificially burnt by my wife. <laughs> um, and then uh, I was reading I want to say a month ago uh, the the comments page to an FT article rich, written by Gavin Davis. And there was reference to the, the YouTube video. And I was like, what? Really? Was, <laughs> was that something you were, was that, were you the author of the video? Or was that I was confusing? very much involved, but it was, it was two young uh, video producers, documentary producers who came across Princes of the Yen. And they thought this should be 
this should be done as a documentary. Now, I had been approached uh, quite a few times by documentary producers, also in Japan, because Princes of the Yen was a number one bestseller in Japan, actually. And um, originally, that's how it all started in 2001. And so there were two attempts in Japan to produce documentaries on it. But as the Japanese um, journalists or editors explained to me, they got killed. <laughs> so it wasn't allowed to happen. And so with these two young guys, and I told them, look, there will be some pressure on you and there'll be some people approaching you and advising you not to go ahead. Oh, don't worry. We're used to that. You know, nobody can stop us. And I've heard this so many times from other people before. Nobody can stop us. And then, oh, sorry, we have to stop this. Um, various things, including the English publication. You know, I had an offer from um, a major uh, English language publisher. And it was the chief executive who read the book and said, we had a lunch meeting in, in New York in the Four Seasons. And the first thing he said is, Richard, I read the book as I'd sent it to him before coming over from Tokyo. Of course, we're going to publish it. So I spent the whole uh, talk about warning him, look, there'll be some people putting pressure on you. And so don't worry, nobody can stop me. We'll publish this. And I'll go back to Tokyo three weeks later, brief email. Um, Dear Richard, it was great to see you. I love your book, but I'm sorry, we can't do it. <laughs> so I've, you know, I've experienced this quite a lot with this Prince of the Yen. Um, but these two guys, they pulled it through. And we worked together on, I gave them lots of footage from my television interviews in Japan, uh, which demonstrated the situation and the things I was saying and the story of Princes of the Yen, the central bank and the shenanigans. It's essentially, you know, all the the inside story of how central banking really works, what the central banks do, how much power they have, and how they manipulate the economy. Um, and of course, it blew the cover on one of the biggest secrets in economics, money creation. Because as you know, the textbooks in economics, they say banks are financial intermediaries, and who creates money? Oh, it's the central bank, isn't it? The government. Um, no, central banks only create 3% of the money supply. Governments don't create any money. 97% is created by the banking system through bank lending. And that puts a completely different spin on things if you realize how important banks are and, of course, how important the, the structure of the banking system is for the whole economy. And so with Princes of the Yen, that cover was blown. And I think people were not happy about it. Also, the other thing, um, particularly in America, they didn't like is that the original edition, 2001, I don't think you've read this, um, the Japanese, because it came out first in Japanese, 2001, and it had a chapter about my meeting with Alan Greenspan. When I met Alan Greenspan and we discussed my paper that he had read four years earlier, which he remembered extremely well. And from the somewhat surprising things he said, I concluded certain things and it's written up in this chapter. And um, this was um, predicting the conclusion was, um, well, the... Federal Reserve is going to do the same thing as the Bank of Japan, which is intentionally create a massive asset market bubble driven by bank credit creation, which is going to create when it blows the biggest financial crisis, a global financial crisis. And that's, of course, the 2008 crisis, which Alan Greenspan did create. But I think it was too early to warn people of that. That wasn't supposed to happen. So all the American publishers said, no, can't publish this. And in the end, I had a visit from a particular uh, American um, agency um, and you know so all sorts of attempts to to stop this and I, I I had to take out that chapter then 
the next American publisher took it. So the version you read doesn't actually have that chapter, but there is a second version of Princes of the Yen, come out recently, which has the long lost last chapter, which was originally published in Japanese about my meeting with Greenspan, uh, what he said, and of course the conclusion, how the Americans, the Greenspan is gonna create this huge asset bubble, do the same thing as the Bank of Japan, and blow up the system, which they like to do in order to do something else. Because the question is, why are central banks doing this? You know, um, and well, yeah. if you want to talk about yeah. that, but no way, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I love the shameless uh, uh, plugging of the the new edition of the book <laughs> in the same vein. In the same vein, don't forget Hugh Hendry official on Instagram. I know you don't like Instagram, but anyway, um, how, can I ask how, how many copies does a book like that sell? Um, in Japan, it was 150,000, which made it a, a bestseller. You're um, a rock star. In the English language, not yet as much, because there have been a lot of attempts to, to suppress it. Uh, but it's it's selling well. So let's let's back up a bit then. Um, so um, I, I think if I was to kind of um, put a, if I was to come back at you with my understanding of what you said, is that um, it's this notion of, uh, what is this notion of what you believe to be true that others um, think of as a, as a conspiracy, if you will, like reality versus these kind of the suppression. And so the reality, as you understand it, is and I, I, I'm with you on this, is that uh, central banks, um, first of all, they're not truly the agents of creating money. They're, they're a kind of smaller a uh, very small factor in that, in terms of the, the pure mechanics of the thing. And the yeah. volume, the volume, yes. The volume, the volume. Of course, they uh, have the important the levers. Volume. They have the levers, but... They can make it happen, yeah. yeah. However, I think the important point is you're saying that um, from time to time, uh, spread out through the, the course of history, and therefore kind of, it has, it takes, it requires typically the the kind of average age of a, of a human being on earth, or like your adult life, 40, 50 years, for the memory to subside and then for another central bank to perhaps take on the folly of these actions. But they, in pursuing an ideology, they use their powers to inflate asset prices. And when that process begins, when this alchemy begins, it always ends in a bubble and a subsequent uh, bust. Yeah. Yes. Is there anything on top of that, that that you believe to be true that others would dismiss as a conspiracy? Of course, there you know people um, in order to suppress this sort of uh, discussion, they'd like to you know use adjectives like that or whatever or descriptions like that. But tell me, if that if that was just a, a vague theory or some kind of conspiracy theory, how could I? In, even in the book that you read, there's there's one chapter on the ECB in there. So it's it's um, in your version, the older version. It's I think it's the last last but one chapter. Um, and the ECB, when this came out in two thousand three, the ECB was fairly new, right? It's just being created in two thousand, and this came out in two thousand three. And I analyzed the ECB because already what they were saying reminded me so much of what the Japanese central bank was saying. Just the words, the language, the particular words. Uh, the overall drift and how they describe their actions and their justifications. It just reminded me so much of that. So then I analyzed, okay, let's, let's have a closer look at this ECB because the official story was, well, this is going to be like the Bundesbank. 
which was a good central bank, solid, no inflation, and so on, conservative. That's what we want. And we're based in Frankfurt, and the, East, the, the Bundesbank was independent. Therefore, the ECB will be independent, and everything will be fine. That's the official story. But as soon as you scratch the surface, you realize it's absolutely not true. In fact, shockingly, it's the opposite. How could that be? Well, the Bundesbank, I think, was a good central bank. As a major central bank, probably the best. Because during its existence, it never created a boom-bust cycle. There was never, during its existence, a significant asset bubble followed by a banking crisis. So they did not do that. And they delivered decent growth, and they delivered low inflation. It's like almost you know, the optimal scenario. So... Um, how did the Bundesbank... But how, Richard, also, yeah. just because I agree with all of that, um, and what I felt my... What I, what I, I feel this urge to say that, I, I again, I think we should sail away from the notion of conspiracy and stuff, um, because I, I think everything in life begins with, with good intentions, and then life just gets in the way and it gets complicated, and we end up cheating, right? and it kind of... You know, I kind of int- well, I think it's interesting, but the second ECB president was Trichet, yeah, and he was after Dusenberg. Um, and Trichet, well, the verb Trichet in French is to cheat, <laughs> and so it started getting complicated. And they brought in a cheat from from the French central bank. But anyway, besides <laughs> that point, what I want, I agree with you the the magnificent magnificent performance of the the German Bundesbank, yeah. But again, I would say that. Uh, they were allowed to pursue their good intentions longer than most because their path was less challenging because of the reconstruction of Germany. You know, they had such a favorable wind, until, well, the, and arguably until now. The, the, the path of central bankers is full of temptations, though, and they resisted these temptations. And then I analyzed why is this? And of course, to understand the success of the Bundesbank, you've got to compare it to its predecessor. The predecessor of the Bundesbank was the Reichsbank until 1945, of course, headquartered in Berlin, the capital of the Deutsches Reich. Okay, now this central bank, the Reichsbank, was the worst central bank in history. I really put it to you. It was the worst central bank. You don't think it was circumstances? Oh, just listen. What they did was they did everything that a central bank could do wrong, namely, so as soon as they were created in 1876, they created, they went straight for the asset bubble. Okay, straight on. Massive encouragement of bank credit creation for asset purchases. Uh, in my quantity theory of disaggregated credit, it's clear when your money creation takes place, it can either go into the GDP, which leads to growth, nominal growth, or it can go into non-GDP assets, and then you get to your asset bubbles. You have to, you know, you look at the data, you can analyze this, and then you see what's happening. So Absolutely. they- this, but- but Richard, you're just like you said, 1878 ish. In yeah. the 1870s, yeah. there was the uh, there was this asset bubble, stock market Absolutely. bubble, and then yeah. and then they tightened, and then of course the bubble crashed as you'd expect, and then there was a, a crisis, banking crisis, financial crisis, and then they tightened a lot, and it became a deflation. The 1880s was a deflation. It's very much like what I just Global experienced deflation. in Japan. Yeah. So like in Japan, asset bubble. Then banking crisis crash and deflation. Now, that's not the end of it. So the Reichsbank continued. It then, um, after the First World War, created hyperinflation. The Weimar hyperinflation was the Reichsbank. 
No, oh, um, he was absolutely. I, I, well, well, the, the, I'll, I'll tell you for how. sure they enabled it, but if it wasn't for the you know the it was the economic consequences of the damn peace treaty, yeah. Well, uh, of course, the you know the Versailles Treaty um, was the external factor, but as a central bank, they didn't have to go for hyperinflation, but they went for it. In fact, the guy uh, very much involved in this, Jelma uh, Schacht. Um, in fact, well, before I come to this, so when you look at this, why was the Reichsbank so bad? So they created hyperinflation, and then the Jelma Schacht, who became the president, then. He essentially took the policies that got Hitler into power. That's another long story, but just take it for now. But that's the Lord's so finance. It's a good if chronicle you this, the Lord's If finance. you add this up, I mean, he was, you know, Hitler then reappointed him in the 30s. He was his, yeah. you know, money wizard. So yeah. that was the Reichsbank. So this central bank did almost everything wrong you can do wrong and got Hitler into power. I mean, hey, can you do anything worse than that? Now, why did it do that? Why could it do that? And what did the Bundesbank what, what changed with the Bundesbank? Because clearly the Bundesbank seemed to be the opposite. They did almost everything right a central bank could do right. So they did an analysis, institutional analysis of the incentive structure of the central bankers. And here's the very simple um, sort of uh, summary conclusion. The Reichsbank did all this because they could, because they were independent from the government. They were independent from parliament they were not accountable at all for their actions. There was no punishment mechanism. There was, you know, they, and then what you get is you get what I call regulatory moral hazard. When the regulator, central bank is also at the same time a regulator, the regulator essentially gets rewarded for, for disasters because the crisis made the regulator more powerful. It gets even more independent. The same happened with the Reichsbank. After the hyper, well, actually before the hyperinflation, after it created the asset bubble of the 70s and deflation of the 80s, it was then rewarded and made more powerful in 1922 by making it independent from the government and that was before already, but now also independent from parliament. It was turned into an international organization accountable only to external forces, the reparation committee, JP Morgan. And you know, as soon as the, the, the parliamentary Reichstag law was signed, before the ink had dried, they started to switch on the printing presses to create the Weimar hyperinflation. Now, the Bundesbank, the people who designed the Bundesbank law and its structure seem to have studied this because what they've done is actually they've reduced the independence of the central bank drastically compared to the Reichsbank and they made it accountable and they made it accountable to parliament. So the Bundesbank was not as independent as people think. It was actually accountable to parliament and the Bundestag, the parliament, could set laws and tell it what to do. And it did. And he told it, look, your job is not just low inflation. You also have to deliver good economic growth. But and we, see that, we see that today, no, with the judgment from the German courts to the Bundesbank, not to the ECB. Yes, exactly. You're right. You're right. Of course, the Bundesbank was, I mean, since the creation of the ECB, it's, it's, not, you know, it's been a shadow of its former self. But you see the remnants still in this judgment, the remnants of the system. Now, therefore, what has actually happened is when the ECB was created, it was sold to the public as, oh, we're just, it's going to be like the Bundesbank. But actually, if you compare the Reichsbank and the Bundesbank, the conclusion is the ECB is designed not on the Bundesbank structure. The Bundesbank was accountable to parliament. It was part of the democratic system. And, you know, they even had a, 
council, where the different states in Germany, regional states are represented, the unions are represented on the board of the Bundesbank in the council. Um, the ECB doesn't have that. The ECB is the revived Reichsbank, independent from government, independent from any parliament democratic assembly in Europe, not accountable to anyone. It's a supranational organization, just like the Reichsbank was after the First World War. And of course, when you do that, when you give so much power to these people, we've seen it in the Reichsbank, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. They maximize their power by having cycles, boom and bust cycles. And so my warning was the ECB is going to create a huge bank credit driven asset bubble. And as soon as the book was published, 2003, they started from 2004. Bank credit growth in Ireland, Portugal, Spain, and Greece under the twenty percent, twenty percent, thirty percent, forty percent growth even in Spain. You know, when it was fifteen uh, in J in Japan from '86 to '89. If I yes. quote you, <laughs> yes, exactly, that's right. Uh. And of course, where was the money going? Not into GDP, it going into asset markets, so that property, uh, these um, property bubbles, and of course, that then created the the crises vast banking system and large-scale recessions and vast unemployment, 50% youth unemployment. Now, that was all the ECB's doing. And nobody can say it, the ECB had no responsibility yeah. or didn't have the power. It was the, It is the most powerful central bank in the world. It, it can have any tool it wants. It can do anything it wants. No, no I, I, I agreed. But I, I, I still really... I'm more a believer in the cock-up theory than, than this is all kind of... Um, I, I, for sure, I definitely, you know, the engaging narrative that you had with Japan was um, a central bank pursuing um, an ideological aim, right? So I think, again, so tell me if I'm wrong here, this is my understanding of what you wrote, that owing to Japan's success, legitimate or otherwise, okay, in overseas markets in terms of exports, it, it reached a tipping point where the American economy was really feeling it. You know, the, there was the shuttering, the, the replacement of inefficient uh, capacity in the States and it was being replaced by the Japanese. And it had reached the, the political level and what it, it became a Japanese problem. Well, it became a global problem, but it was Japan's problem. And so the solution was, hey, let's pump our domestic economy to make it grow much faster. And in the process, we will automatically be bringing in more American um, imports and that will take the heat and the pressure off. So number one objective is let's use the power of the central bank to dictate superior economic growth to bring down the imbalance in the overseas sector. Yes, um, although they, they actually went further because they uh, specifically thought about how to shock the old system and essentially convince people that the old system doesn't work anymore. If you look at the Maikawa plan, Maikawa being uh, Bank of Japan governor, uh, written by his, he's one of the princes, and then his successor, Mieno, he actually wrote the, the report. It reads like the American, you know, list, you know, in the, the negotiation with Japan in the 70s and 80s, structural impediments initiative, the Americans were saying, um, essentially, well, the true story is Japan was too successful, right? So one U.S. industry after another got wiped out by the Japanese and the Americans decided it's got to stop. So, of course, you can't tell the Japanese people your economy is too successful. Please make it less successful. But that's the real story. So the Americans had the hard job of telling them, we want to help you improve your economy. Not really, because they'd be more successful. Um, but, you know, you need structural reform. You need to deregulate, liberalize and privatize and 
you know, you need to have more imports and people work too hard, have more quality of life and more consumption. That's the idea. And of course, if you do all that, yes, you get an economy that's much weaker than the high powered, high growth East Asian um, miracle model that Japan pioneered. Because essentially it's about abolishing this high growth system. And the Americans tried to cajole and, and in negotiations, they got, you know, they got some results, but not really uh, very deep, not enough. Japan yeah, continued yeah. to be successful. Now, that's when the central bankers wrote this plan in the 80s, the Maikawa plan. And he said that, and it's quite, quite intriguing because it says um, Japan will change its economic structure. It will shift to domestic demand expansion. It will, um, you know, uh, be less focused on exports. It will have more imports and in that. And it was listing all these American demands, but he said that it will happen, that, you know, this will happen. And then how, how? The only thing this report says is in order to, for the structural, structural transformation to take place, monetary policy will have to be used flexibly. Now, the people who ran this program of getting this um, asset bubble going in the 80s, because this is then what happened after the Maikawa plan was announced, um, stock prices started to rise, land prices started to rise. And if you look into the mechanics behind it, it was bank credit creation for asset transactions for property lending, pushing up property prices. Famously, you know, in Tokyo, Marunouchi, central Tokyo, the Imperial Palace Garden, not that large, but, you know, decent sized park. If you calculate in, in 89, the value famously um, of that using Marunouchi um, property values, it was the same market value as the entire state of California, including Los Angeles, San Francisco. And so the mechanism to get this asset bubble was bank credit. And I, I studied why did the banks lend so much money for asset transactions, for real estate purchases and so on. And it turned out that, you know, I interviewed branch managers of, of banks um, that in the 80s were branch managers. They told me, well, it was crazy. We were really contact cold calling companies, telling them we've got some property here. Uh, we've done all the calculations. You just sign here. We'll lend you the money. You buy this. It'll go up. You make money. And so we were creating a bubble. Wow. So if you thought this is kind of crazy, why did you do it? Well, the branch manager gave us a quota. We had to increase lending. So I spoke to branch managers of the Japanese banks and asked them, so what, what, so what happened in the 80s? Oh, 80s, crazy times. We were you know, going out and lending left, right and center. I was telling my, my staff to increase lending for property. And it was kind of risky. We were creating a bubble here. So why did you do that? Well, I was just doing what headquarters told me, strategic planning department of the bank. They've got plans. Each branch has to increase lending by this much. So then I interviewed the people in the strategic lending department at the banks. And what I found was same story. Oh, 80s, crazy. We were telling the bank, you know, our branches to increase lending um, by this much and this much for property. Um, and we were creating a bubble. It was kind of risky. So why did you do it? Well, I was just telling what the I was just telling my staff what the Bank of Japan told us I had a quota from the sure. Bank of Japan to increase lending. So then this I went to the, the window bank guidance. Yeah, that's the window guys went to the Bank yeah. of Japan and same story. And they told me, oh, yeah, we told the banks to increase lending by this and this much property lending and so on. It's kind of crazy. We're creating a bubble here. So why did you do it? Oh, I was told to do so by the head of the lending department at the Bank of Japan, the banking department. Mr. Fukui, Toshihiko Fukui. Now, he ran this window guidance in the bubble era. 
Now, then what happened in the 90s when, of course, you know, when you have this bubble, you just need to, it's a game of musical chairs. The music is the money creation of the banking system. You stop that, bubble collapses, the whole thing goes into reverse, bankruptcies, and then, of course, credit tightening. Now, so once the recession starts, um, then you get a credit crunch. And then it depends on what the central bank does, because if you leave this alone, the banks will just continue to tighten, creates more, you know, downward reverse spiral, more bad debts, um, more, you know, less credit, therefore more asset price falls, more bankruptcies. The whole thing can go on for 20 years as it did. I, I know. <laughs> but, but the central bank can step in. Now, who then moved moved up? How did how did Mr. Fukui and his boss, Mr. Mieno, do? Mr. Mieno was deputy governor during the bubble period. Prince yeah. and Fukui was known as a prince, one of these princes. In the 90s, these guys they moved up. Mieno then became governor, and Fukui became first director and then deputy governor. Now, remarkably, Mieno became a superstar because he was the architect of bursting the bubble. He he put exactly. rates up, yeah, and exactly when actually he had created it together with Fukui, he created it and then he destroyed it and he, he got he got the the benefit going up and coming down. I mean, that guy just won. But Richard, the... the you you see, but what did they say, Hugh? What did they say in the 90s? They said, we don't want a recovery because mm. if we have an economic recovery, then there won't be structural change. They even said this on the record. We I want know. to prolong the recession yeah. to get the structural change that exactly. they had planned in the 80s. Okay, so this is where this is where it's fascinating, okay? Because, and, and so one of the great takeaways from your, from your book for me was that I had been programmed to believe that, um, you know, Jap the, again, this cultural kind of uh, uh, almost racism, discrimination in, in our heads, like you know, the Asian savings model, they're very prudent, they work incredibly hard. Um, and, what, and, and they were really struggling because property prices became so elevated and, and the, the, you were having to take a 120-year loan, et cetera. And all of that was tosh, as you said, the banks with this very powerful dictate that you had to each quarter expand your credit book by X percent and X being a big number versus GDP growth. And if you didn't do that, you'd lose your banking license. You would lose your livelihood. So threat success. OK. And these ordinary Chinese, uh, Chinese these ordinary Japanese folk ended up with two, three um, mortgages. It was this kind of the subprime that we saw in America many exactly. years later. So that says, says law, says law. Supply creates its own demand. Exactly. Yeah. The credit supply creates its own demand. Banks can exactly. always push money into the economy because exactly. the credit market is always, there's always excess demand for money. People always will take money and therefore banks banks determine this market. This is really where I want to tap into that brain of yours, okay? Um, because, and this is kind of what if, you know? So the bubble burst deliberately under a change in the ideology of the central bank that like it woke up yesterday with a, this uber plan for like reforming the, the, the Japanese economy and boosting economic growth and bringing in these imports and living more in a harmonious manner with his US partner. Okay. And then the next day it woke up and it rejected everything with regard to that ideology and it wanted to pursue a new path. And because of ideology, not because of the absurdity of the valuation, okay? Stock prices, you, know, you, you lost a bid, you lost the marginal bid, and, and therefore risk prices collapsed 
My point that I want to labour and, and make to you now is what if the ideology had not changed? Where would we be today? Because that's kind of like the US is pursuing this kind of, we'll come back to that, but there's an ideology to inflate risk assets. And there's a reason, which is to kind of to do less harm than the alternative, they believe. Um, so what if, the, and as I said, I can see a goat coming into my house. But anyway, um, what if Mienosan had not started raising rates to kind of purge the excess from the system? Take me to 1990. Okay, well, before we do that thought experiment, I would say actually the ideology did not change. The ideology... The ideology of the central bankers was always the same. You see, they didn't like the system that was in place in Japan before, because in that high growth system, the central bank played a lower level role. It was receiving orders from the Ministry of Finance. At law, the central bank was not independent. It had to work, it had to do what the government told it, what the Ministry of Finance in practice told it, and it didn't like it. And that was a big uh, issue. And therefore, it saw the chance with the American demands coming in that essentially it, it used the Americans as its ally. And essentially, you know, what, what they did is, OK, we'll do what the Americans want. They will back us. America will back us. Japan is still occupied. I mean, there's American troops there. Um, so then Bank of Japan has strong support. And ultimately, we want to get rid of the finance ministry control. We want to be independent and we want to be the, the top cheese here in this economy. And so it's really the power play of the bureaucrats at the Bank of Japan. This is the Bank of Japan and, taking out the Ministry of Finance. Yes. And they did successfully, totally, did, did. Uh, sadly, but at the cost, at what cost to the whole economy and, and the high growth system and, you know, a 30 year recession. And so they that what they found is i mean how you know Miena wrote this in the Michael report to use monetary policy flexibly to get a transformation of the economic structure that included political changes deregulation liberalization privatization you need to change laws yeah. how can you use monetary policy for that there's only one way and that is to create an asset bubble which you then burst and the good thing about this from a central bank's viewpoint is that people won't stop you because they love it well you do it they will take the money. You're pushing more money into the system. Everyone loves it. The politicians love it. There's more money coming around here. Finance ministry tax revenues going up. Everyone thinks it's great. But actually, that's how you blow up the system. And that's what they did. Sure. But, you know, they weren't anarchists. But anyway, so, so let's, <laughs> you know, um, so, it looks like anarchy, do you think but if they didn't tighten in. If they did not change ideology, because my my. So typically what would have happened, it typically People like me and, and the people who are listeners here, you know, I keep quoting Oasis, we see things differently. You and me, we're going to live forever, you know. Uh, and we're the people that they call it and say, are you crazy? You know, 15% um, bank credit growth year after year, like we saw, and like you say, in Ireland, I think it was 20. In Spain in the late 80s, it was like 40%. We see that. We see that being unsustainable. And we head to the exit. We make, you know, we make sure we don't have assets denominated in that currency because it's very vulnerable. Um, and then we might put short positions because we anticipate the inevitable bust, okay? No one in our community could take on the Bank of Japan because its external balance sheet was kind of almost the same as the IMF in terms of dollars held. And so no one was, was, going, to, no one was going to take them on or maybe it would take another 10 years of excess. And how would Japan look if it had another 10 years? So, again, it's just um, 
I'm kind of trying to deal with this premise of what, like, because you just, I think you just, you've got the handbook, you know, if you want economic, a lot of economic growth, right? So, which is the kind of number one objective today in Western economies, which have this, this generation of kind of unskilled labor, in fact, more than unskilled, it's crept way up into the, the labor pool, where they're being displaced by, you know, the billions of uh, Asian hardworking, da, 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 okay. Um, and, and so there is a prosperity, but they haven't felt it. You know, the whole Trump population says, make America, make America great means make the American GDP grow at three, three and a half, four percent. And you describe perfectly how we can do that, okay? Oh, yes. There, the are, there are consequences. System, the East Asian high growth system can be introduced in any country in the world, which means we can have high and stable non-inflation growth without crises. It is possible. Without crisis. Okay, so how do we get it without crisis? Is it because there's no power for speculators like me to challenge and to take it down? Or No, no, no. Um, in fact, you, you, you know, the speculators don't do anything bad. You, you let them do what they do, but... Oh, we reinforce, we are the reflexivity well, exactly. because it's Pavlov's dog. Yeah. When speculators yeah. see a weakness, they seize it. So you mustn't show weakness from a policymaker's perspective. And that's possible. It is possible. And they, they can speculate. But um, you see, the main thing is this. Bank credit creation can be used for growth or for not for GDP transactions when it goes into investment, business investment. Um, but if bank credit creation goes into the purchase of assets because it's money creation. It's like creating new money and pumping into purchasing assets. Of course, asset prices will rise. That is unstable. It's unsustainable because how can you stably manage this? Bank credit needs to be serviced and repaid. And that can only be done sustainably if it is for business investment because that delivers the, um, the returns to service and repay the loan. Anything else is unsustainable because the asset bubble, while it happens, that may be five years, 10 years, 15 years, it looks as if there's lots of money being made, but they're capital gains, that's very different. And it's a musical chair um, game. But Richard, I'm confused because I, you started off saying that this model was this model of generating GDP growth to kind of placate and to subdue and to uh, uh, make happy your, your population at large. Is very very feasible via the mechanism of, of bank credit growth, yeah. but then I think what you're then support taking on to say, yeah. so, with the so, caveat that it has to support business investment. Exactly. So so yeah. In fact, the punchline is that you use the window guidance. The simplest form of window guidance is just a rule, so you don't actually have to intervene regularly. You just have a rule uh, that bank credit creation can only be used if it contributes to GDP. And that means it mustn't be used to purchase assets. Then you'll say immediately, Hugh, well, what about people that want a mortgage and buy a house that's already existing there? Of course, if you build a house, it's a different story. But if it's already, you know, want to buy a house or an apartment, they should not get money from banks because that's new money creation. And new money creation is only justified if there's also new goods and services being created. Then you don't get inflation. Then you have income streams to service. Then you have a stable system and you can have very high growth. You know, five percent, even ten percent, or as, as you know, East Asian countries showed, twenty percent growth is possible for years. But if if you don't do that, and if money creation is used for asset purchases, you create instability. Now, what do people do that want a mortgage? And it has been done in in East Asian countries. You set up non-bank financial institutions, 
mortgage lenders that don't have the power to create credit. They're not banks. They don't create credit. And they, they're specialists. They lend the money. And of course, the banks mustn't, issue, mustn't purchase their bonds either. And if you do that, you then ensure that asset purchases are funded with existing money. And if you want to do asset speculation as, a, as an investor or speculator, fine, but raise existing money. Don't use bank credit. Now, look at the hedge fund industry. We all know, uh, particularly the, the old style global macro before the crisis, they used leverage to make most of their money. Right. You just show what you do is every month, tiny, tiny return growth, but no drawdown. And then you multiply it by 10 times, 20 times through leverage. That is bank credit. And the trouble is that's a public privilege. That's money creation. And that has to be stopped. Now, if you don't do that, the bond invest, uh, the, the, the hedge fund investors, um, they should get their money from existing sources. You know, let them get it from existing sources. Why not? <laughs> but it can't be money creation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you're creating yeah. an asset bubble. You sounded like the Bundesbank and very puritanical, <laughs> very correct, and very correct. I mean, like that hedge fund model you describe really was a hedge fund model, um, which is the LTCM model. Yeah, where yeah. faced, you know, after 20 years of the Dow Jones Industrial Average compounding at close to 15% dividends reinvested in real terms, the greatest investment returns ever, like over a 20-year stretch. Clearly, prospective returns moving forward had like shrunk to like nothing. And and you we should have stopped speculation at that point. But of course, our Nobel laureate friends said, hey, but what if we, rather than like 1x, 2x, we kind of 100x? And of course, that was... The, the idiocy of that was shown in stark relief in in um, in the crisis of heavens 1990, 1998, had a chance to say that that hedge fund model is nonsense, but they bailed it out. Exactly. The they bailed no out. one wants of course, remember, remember in that famous meeting um, in, in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, there were two players that decided, no, we're not going to join in. Who were they? Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. So 10 years later, they were punished. I like Richard, really. Come on, stop the conspiracy. Um, okay. Now, Come on, it's not a conspiracy. Um, Everyone sure. in, in Wall Street again, will tell you. <laughs> do me the do me the thought experiment again. What if Mieno-san had not been promoted to head the bank, and they had kept with the same ideology? And ten years later, unchecked, the Garden Palace of the Emperor was worth not the value of California, but the value of the U.S. real estate sector. <laughs> what 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 would be what if, what would have stopped that happening? Could that have happened? If left unchecked. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It probably could have continued for quite a bit. Um, in fact, that's what most people, of course, at the time were predicting, because they couldn't see under the surface that actually 
You know, you can see the circuit breaker, no circuit yeah. breaker. The Bank of Japan actually was was really like uh, was a traitor to this. You know, they were playing the game in the 80s, but only to bust the system. And that really did people didn't realize. And even today, I think most people are not aware of that. But let's assume they weren't doing that. Let's assume they were playing ball. I th- course, sorry, I, the, in, the, in the 1980s, they were, to my mind, they were very, very pro-growth and kind of like economic heroes, if you will. And they were saving Japan the cost of having to retreat from the international market where it was dominating. So they were protecting the beachhead. And so I think that's all kind of pro uh pro-Japan, pro-nationalistic, whatever, you know, preserving its advantages in the face of political, uh, but in the face of uh, a tactical insurgency from the US, and they pushed that back successfully. The destruction and the anarchy came with Mieno and the rejection of everything they'd gone before in terms of the previous right. 10 years. Yeah? But of course, as you said earlier, you know, as... as um hedge fund manager, when you look at a country and you see the unsustainable bank credit growth, you know what's going to happen next. I so, do, if it's so Thailand, the bank but if also it's Japan, what doing, sure, but if it's Japan and it's like the IMF, I'm never going to take the IMF on. And so it, like only the foolish really were shorting the yen at that point. And so I still say to you that I guess I'm saying Well, the currency maybe, is slightly different, perhaps just briefly on the FX. Um, and I've got a, you know, my FX model did really well when I was chief economist at Jardine Fleming in, in Tokyo. Um, and the yen was um, first, you know, I was predicting yen strength and the yen had just shot up to the highest um, on record. What was it? 94.79 or something. Um, no, actually, no, sorry. Not at all. This was in 1994. It shot to what was that? 79.75. Sure. But what, 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 was, the, what but then, was the factor in the model that was predicting exactly. the Exactly, what's the factor? Yeah. You're right. And then I was predicting it's going to go to, on average, by 1996 fiscal year, 113 on average. Therefore, it's going to go to 140 in absolute terms. And, and nobody believed me. What's but the because, factor? Yeah. Because, and this is where, you see, when you study credit creation, there's a difference between um, domestic credit creation and and the factors that influence the exchange rate. And there's quite an intriguing story. It's perhaps slightly technical, but um, you see the, the bank credit creation is something that affects the domestic economy and domestic factors, but it doesn't actually affect the exchange rate. I mean, if you try to run a, an FX model um, by using data on bank credit creation, it's not going to work. And I don't know any that does work. Um, and it's kind of intriguing because we haven't we just said that bank credit creation is money creation and surely money creation should affect relative exchange rates, right? But it doesn't work. And the reason is this. It has to do with the nature of international money. We talk about capital flows and we have this image. It's like, you know, money flows from one country to another. But of course, the truth is well, that, that was accurate when we had a gold standard and the Bank of England had ships to ship gold in and out. We don't have a gold standard. And so the truth is we don't have capital flows. Capital doesn't flow anymore. And there's a rule in international banking. I mean, I've been 14 years professor of international banking. The fundamental rule of international banking is there are no capital flows. Money doesn't flow. So the money created by Japanese banks is in yen and it stays in Japan. 
the money created by British banks is in pounds sterling and it stays within the British banks. And so there are no capital flows. Of course, there's a, that raises a few other questions. And maybe if we have time, we can talk about this. Uh, for example, one intriguing aspect coming from this before we come back to the exchange rate is what about all these developing countries? They've been told by the IMF and the World Bank, oh, you don't have enough savings. That's what the economics models say. So you can't have growth. We need savings. We need investment for growth. If you don't have savings, you can't have the investment. You can't grow. Oh, we'll lend you the money. So the foreign investors lend the money, foreign investment, FDI, lend, you know, uh, debt. And we had the, you know, the uh, third world debt okay, crisis no, one after another. But none of this money yeah. actually came into okay. these countries. None of it came into these countries because they lend in foreign currency. It stayed abroad, which is quite an interesting story. So but what the factor actually, model, yeah, the factor model really is that you can fool everyone all the time, right? Um, that if Japanese asset prices are, are are going up 15, 20% per annum. The overseas speculator wants to participate and therefore buys yen assets. And and they they don't look at the unsustainable nature. They just want to join the party. Yeah. And and yes, so you can throw, a, you can throw everyone all the time, so, so to speak. That is a very strong yeah incentive. And 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 uh, exactly. And there's so many questions that come from that. But I'm I'm going to push against that because for the time. I really want to, can, again, narrow down on this agenda of taking Japan's and your knowledge of Japan's experience with bubble and with um, monetary policy at the forefront and take it to try and find answers or, or knowledge regarding today. Okay, So if I may right. put to you that I think it's, it's as if the Fed, like you said, Greenspan was very knowledgeable about your output, yeah, your thinking. Uh, I kind of want to say to you that the Fed has pursued, I think, 90% of everything you've said and then ignored the, the crucial 10% caveat, okay? <laughs> and, and the caveat, and they've done so without the the dictating of uh, you must, like window guidance and saying, you must expand credit as bank XYZ for the calendar year 2020. You must do 12%. Yeah. Uh, but they, they haven't done that, but the... The, the fooling all the people all the time via the mechanism of rising asset prices has done it for them exactly. in a sense. So if we look at um, since the bust of 2008, broad money supply, and I, I say broad, it pains me to say it because they've messed around with these money supply uh, oh, yes. so oh, much. Yes. But the M2 statistic, which is the dirty one that's available, kind of, it's a pretty, as a central bank, it's a reasonable scorecard that says these guys have not been asleep like their European um, uh, compatriots. Because you, I, I want to say M2 growth has averaged over the period like high seven, six, six, seven percent per annum, like versus GDP, nominal GDP. That's kind of like compare that to, you know, if I was looking at data for France and it's compounding at two percent. Now, two percent. Is not the you're gonna have, you have gilets jaunes, you have demonstrations, you have people who reject your system because you're not giving them the oxygen of prosperity. So the U.S. Yes, is very been, good, very well put. You know, yeah, the U.S. has been there, um, and it has used animal spirits and the recognition that you need bank credit expansion in order to, to in order to suppress uh, revolutions, if you will. Yeah. Um, so kind of jo and job done. You, you've had. I, three 
QEs, or is it, is this the fourth iteration? I mean, you're the inventor of the term, yeah. But yes, each, yeah. Each, each one was criticized, but after the initial kind of the annualized rate of expansion goes crazy on the the initial exercise, but then it gets swallowed up, uh, and again, it you know. It, it get, and it comes through in a steady manner, which kind of allows you to expand. This is the longest economic expansion I think the U.S. has enjoyed. Yeah. So kind of a lot of gold stars. And yet here we are and, and we do have Trump and we do have an economy teetering and searching for revolution. And again, we have this, as you yeah. say, but what feels like a coup d'etat with the virus, but you know, a very febrile, febrile environment, and it feels as if the system could break. Let's say this hadn't happened, this COVID-19 hadn't happened, then this is this, and that's why, presumably that's why you asked the question, because the Fed is doing what the Bank of Japan has been doing, the, the, the bubble part, but it has not done the tightening bit, right? Yeah, it hasn't and, rejected its ideology. The ideology that it embarked on with Bernanke in October 2002 or three, when he said, let me apologize for the sins of my forefather and, and the strong money. It was an ideology where we sacrificed the great American worker on the cross of gold. And that, I'm sorry, I've got your back, okay? And that's the ideology that they are pursuing today, yeah? And unless they change, again, it's like unless they change, then we're kind of in Japan with the Nikkei at forty thousand in December nineteen eighty nine. So again, yeah. it's that it's that premise. Well, I think I think there will be a reckoning because I mean, let's just pursue this uh, further. So we've we've had now this um, COVID crisis where you know people say there's this uh, dangerous virus killing a lot of people. Although you know, as you know, it's kind of hard to actually show in, in the data. And also there's there's different views about are these really COVID deaths and, and so on. So all strange things happen, but never mind. So we have this crisis. Um, and as a result, we've had, I mean, the amounts of money, just astonishing, you know, a few trillion here, a few trillion here, injected by the Fed. And where's this money going? It doesn't seem all that transparent. But can, we we, know, can I stop you one second, Richard, because just for the audience, and I'm sure they know this, but with all of the other QE1, QE2, QE, et cetera, you could, the money supply bumped to like 14, 20% annualized growth. With what they've done this year, we're running at 100%. So we're 5x the interventions of previously. So back to your point. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Uh, so, I mean, completely unprecedented monetary blowout. And it seems that this is being used by some big players to make them whole. Because at the same time, of course, we had a crash then, um, driven by the, the virus. But it seems that you know, a lot of big players are being made whole. Whereas ordinary people, small shops, SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises, they're being crushed and they, you know, we have vast large-scale unemployment now. So it really seems to be under this um, this cover of COVID, what we have is a, a dramatic acceleration of this redistribution and further concentration of money in the hands of, you know, ever fewer players while ordinary people are not benefiting. And then would, won't we then ultimately get this scenario, as you mentioned, like in France, you know, ordinary people demonstrating, well, maybe not if we have a new law which says, oh, you can't be in public and, you know, you can't demonstrate. Um, 
and so on. So, you know, it, it looks like we've the underlying tension has increased, but what we now have is um, laws and strong rules that that uh, we would not have believed are possible really in, in a country like the United States uh, to prevent this from erupting. Now, maybe this is going to work, but maybe not. This is very hard to have a public discourse. It's a very emotional uh, conversation. Um, I think our audience, uh, we are analytical people. And three months ago, this was a very scary phenomenon because we lacked data yeah, in terms of the virus. And today, the one thing that we do have is data. And when we look at it, it seems to be very hard to, to construe an understanding as to the severity of the reaction by, by the state. And they seem to have bred um, the, the greatest fear is not the virus, it's fear itself, kind of to, to play with uh, Rousseau. Um, but then you could think about it, there was a kind of propaganda, and indeed 99% of people listening to this think I'm a jerk, and you know, I, I won't argue with that. But, you know, because I've come out and I've said, I think you kind of got to give these guys a break in terms of the Fed and the quantitative easing. I can see its place and its justification. But maybe you, you could say that we were reaching a point where people were saying, this funny money quantitative easing is making me poorer and poorer as a, as a regular guy, and it's making the rich 1% richer and richer. And like every revolution, what you have to do if you're the proponent of the revolution is that those who were very against you, those that hated you, you have to convert into your most loyal lieutenants. And how do you create that transformation? You do so via some mechanism um, which which ferments immense fear. And like now, I imagine with 20% unemployment, with the GDP heading to being down 20% year over year, people will be, dem they'll be demanding, pleading for you to give them more of what they were rejecting previously, which is, yeah. uh, you know, which is the funny money. But again, I'm now, I, I'm now sounding like you and your conspiracy theories. <laughs> um, um, tell me what the Fed is doing wrong today and how um, you would change it. By the way, I don't have any conspiracy theories. I, I'm a scientific empirical researcher. So, but sometimes when the conclusions um, tell you to conclude something based on facts, you have to be bold and state it, even if some people don't like it. No, you're your a crusader, you're, you're brave, <laughs> I, I respect you, I'm just playing with you. <laughs> okay, so what should the Fed do? Well, of course, ideally the Fed should have followed the rule of my quantity theory of disaggregated credit and ensured that bank credit is used only uh, for productive purposes, and then we wouldn't have had this acid bubble. But never mind. I think that's a cop-out, Richard. I think that's a cop-out. Yeah, never mind. I, okay, I think so that's, no, but, no, but it's a very important cop-out, because that, that is, like, all of your wisdom from your book hinges on the one caveat, which is what you've just said, that all of the money, so the bank can, the central bank can create a tiny part of the money, but it can influence the totality, okay, through either coercion oh, that, can done. that can be easily done. Be, they just, yeah, need, sure. we just need a rule, you know, exactly. connected to the banking license. Okay, but but even no, sure. I say but you're saying, but you're saying, forgive me, but you are saying that is the panacea with one condition that all of that money has to fund productive investment. And the, of course, the retort to that is, well, what if the productive investment opportunity is pea-sized? And we need something which is the size of a basketball to, to stop the oh, revolution. That's not a problem because we have humans and humans are creative and they create ideas. They create technology. There's so much great technology that hasn't been implemented because there hasn't been money because the incentives have been wrong 
and the wrong things are being funded. But leaving that aside, even if they don't follow this rule and they haven't followed the rule, what I give is advice on what to do. And my other book, New Paradigm in Macroeconomics, I mean, it, you know, it predicted we get this banking crisis, 2008 banking crisis. And I even wrote what they're going to do after the banking crisis, all the wrong things. But I told them, actually, you don't have to do these wrong things. You can do this. And what is it? First of all, when you have a banking crisis, you don't need um, this to be just to turn into a recession because um, you can take away the bad debts in the banking system at zero cost to the taxpayer. How? That's what the central bank can do. If a central bank purchases them at face value, they're wiped off the bank's balance sheets. And the central bank, well, it doesn't feel the pain. Um, so end of story. And then you've solved the problem and banks can create credit. Of course, you should have, you should ask for strings, you know, when you, you should attach strings when you bail them out in this way, um, which usually they don't do for some reason, but you should. And you should say, well, from now on, create credit for productive purposes and you'll follow this procedure. So it could be done very easily. Does but that now mean that the banking sector crisis. has to be nationalized? Does it have to be then an explicit no. adjunct of the government? No, I'm, I'm actually quite against that. But I'm glad you mentioned this because what we're now witnessing is, and particularly with this crisis, is really accelerating this. What we're witnessing is a trend towards Sovietization of big chunks of so many economies. It is shocking, even in the US, essentially de facto nationalizations and centralizations. Now, the overarching, overarching um, trend of the 20th century was the trend towards centralization, ever more power in the hands of fewer people, particularly central bankers have been beneficiaries of this. And each crisis gives them more power, which is why we have this moral hazard, regulatory moral hazard, they benefit from crisis. But this is now accelerating because what they're saying now is, and the central banks have been saying this to you, you must have uh, heard this many times, cash is bad. And once the COVID crisis came, oh, now really cash is bad, the virus could be on it. We want to abolish cash. Uh, banks are bad. Oh, banks create money. You know, once I lifted the lid and, and blew the cover, they, they switched to plan B. We now have to abolish bank credit creation. Why? Well, what if Joe Public realizes banks create money? They could actually go out and create local not-for-profit banks for the benefit of the ordinary people. That must be prevented. So now we want to prevent bank credit creation. And, and this is happening now. The central bank is, this is a historic moment, not witnessed in 300 years, that this concordat, this agreement between the central bank and the banks has been ripped up. What is the agreement? The agreement is um, the banks create the bulk of the money. They have accounts. That's where retail and businesses have their accounts. They deal with that and they create the money. But the central bank is the top dog. But the central bank, in exchange for being top dog and having coordinating power, it keeps out of that business. Retail doesn't have accounts with the central bank. Businesses don't have accounts with the central bank. That is the agreement. And there's been a balance in place worldwide. And of course, central bank issues paper money, but it's only a small amount. Banks don't issue paper money anymore. Um, and so that was the balance. This has been ripped up because now the central banks who are regulators of the banks are announcing, they have announced it, that they will now compete with their own regulated. The central banks will now begin to compete with the banks. How? 
Well, this digital central bank currency is nothing but a current account at the central bank. So everyone will get an account with the central bank. This is going to be the, uh, it's the, uh, essentially, um, the thin edge of a wedge. And the end of this is going to be no more banks. Because if the regulator moves against the regulator, I mean, talking about conflict of interest, <laughs> I mean, the, it has the, the regulator now has an incentive to get rid of banks. They've started it. They've, they've declared war against yeah, the so banks. It's, so, so it's a hidden nationalization. You, you, you do, and you have to do it because in America, the, you, the whole uh, language of socialism is wrapped up in communism. And so you have to therefore make it a technical change in order to achieve a nationalization. And um, so we'll end up with the central bank being the only bank. That's what we had in the Soviet Union. And that's not well, good. But you know, so again, Richard, you're, my, my mind's like fireworks are going off as, as I listen, uh, you know. Um, Sovietization, that centralization model, okay? Um, when you said that, and when I considered our starting point, which was Japan, and um, we said that actually Japan post-war, and it, Japan post-war adopted its very successful economic economic strategy pre-war yeah it was a very very strong economic model and they were like as your book depicts all of the architects of it were slowly and surely and invisibly put into positions of power again and they recreated it and japan became a, an economic powerhouse and then that was brought down by the anarchy or otherwise of, of the bank of japan okay um what if it's, it's the rise of the phantom, if you will, that actually we're going, because what if we're actually going back and it's the takeover of, let's be positive, what if it's not Sovietization, but it's actually returning to the thing which was phenomenal, which was that Japanese centralized economic growth machine. Okay, we will we'll be able to tell which one it is by the number of banks. Japan did extremely well because it had many, many banks. In order to ensure that bank credit is used for productive purposes, you need a lot of banks with many branches where there are actually experienced bankers that know how to read a balance sheet, that know how to kick the tires in actual companies, small companies. That's hard work, you know, you, and, and make the right decision. That's when it works. When you have this uh, multifaceted banking system, Japan has many types of banks and many, many banks. Uh, so that works really well. Now, let's compare the Soviet Union and China. The Soviet Union, because until uh, Deng Xiaoping took over in China, China is very similar to the Soviet Union in many ways. The Mao, you know, Mao um, communism was like the Soviet Union, Stalinist type of uh, system that did not work very well. How many banks did the Soviet Union have? It had one bank, one bank only. That bank had branches, but it was one bank. And that doesn't work. Why? Because you don't have this detailed decentralized analysis of people on the ground in the many geographically remote areas analyzing on the ground all these small firms. It's the same the world over. Most employment is with small firms. In the UK, it's 66% is SME, is, is employment of all employment is SMEs. In Germany, it's 70%. In Japan, it's 80% of employment is with SMEs. And that's where the jobs are, which is why we're now in trouble, because that's what they've, they've been shutting down. This is a direct assault on the majority of people's you know, employment. Now, um, China, when the Chinese saw this, and particularly when Deng Xiaoping came to power, um, he realized, I mean, the Soviet Union 
Um, soon after, in the next decade, essentially went bust. The system didn't work. And Deng Xiaoping realized this. This is not going to work. We have to bail out. Of course, he wasn't going to give up communism, but he wanted to reject the system. And what he did is he switched from centralization to decentralization. As soon as he started, and of course, he'd been, he visited Japan, he copied the Japanese model, and he realized we need banks, many banks. He established thousands of banks. China created thousands of banks, and that delivered this high growth. And of course, then window guidance uh, did the rest. Now, look at the U.S. The U.S. overall has performed very well as an economy over the last 200 years. I think that's fair to say because it had higher growth in the past and the growth rate has sort of come down. And that is proportional to the number of banks. Before the Great Depression, America had close to 30,000 banks. The Federal Reserve closed 10,000 banks during the recession, unnecessarily so, and the system became more concentrated. And also in every industry became more concentrated. The, the farmers that used to own the land, family-owned farmers, the whole country, in the 1930s, they were expropriated. The banks took the land from them. It became mega agro-business centralization, almost Soviet-style, you know, huge um, kolkhoz type of agro-businesses. Um, now, what about just recent, the recent period? If we go back only 15 years, America had 15,000 banks, which is the largest number of banks in any country in the world. Okay, America is big, so they need more, but still... Um, it, that's the largest number of banks. But today, how many do we have? We only have barely 5,000. Why? The Federal Reserve has continued this policy of whittling down the number of banks. And one way to do this is to have lower and lower and lower interest rates and a flat yield curve and a negative yield curve. You are driving banks out of business. You're forcing them out of business. The same is happening in the Eurozone. Under the ECB's watch, uh, hundreds and hundreds of banks have disappeared. In Europe, the country with the largest number of banks is Germany. And the secret of German economic success, which also has had a very good economic performance the last 200 years, uh, has been the decentralized banking system. 80% of German banks still today are not-for-profit local community banks. So you've got many, many small banks. The high street big banks, they're only 12% by, measured by deposits. So it's these small banks. Why do you need small banks? Because small banks lend to small firms. Big banks have no business lending to small firms. They're not interested. No, I get, ever so I get that. But, but the number of banks is going to be the determining factor. So um, I'm conscious of, of our time and whatever. And so I kind of want to leap from there because, okay, because you're suggesting perhaps an agenda, a, a takeover agenda by the centrist central bank. Okay. There's something we can be, do. We can well, set up not-for-profit community banks. I'm doing this in England, by the way. So any uh, investor who's interested, we're setting up community banks. They're not-for-profit, but there's going to be a dividend. We're starting with the Hampshire Community Bank. We're doing it all across England now. We can do something. We can work against this, and we can help SMEs now, and it's needed more than ever with this crisis. Absolutely. We're setting up these banks across the UK. You don't need much money to create a bank. So if you ask me, Richard, what are you doing these days? Well, I'm creating banks. And we're very close to getting setting up a hedge fund. That's what hedge funds are doing. Disintermediation of the banking sector, you know, and a review and analysis of the credit risk, underwriting the credit risk and making the capital uh, allocation. But what I wanted to say to you that I think your idea would be legitimized if we saw a step forward. So 
uh, again with with our uh, patron Raul listening in, I'm sure he wants to kick me and say, "Hey, wind this damn thing up!" But he wants to kick me and say, neg- "Mention negative interest rates." Uh, and so before I, I hit you in with the with that introduction, I, I think the negative interest rate, Raul, forgive me, but I think what it neglects is the kind of the no-brainer first point, which is you take away the central bank. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Fed pays 10 basis points to the commercial banks for them parking reserves on the, the central bank. And I think in, in Europe, it's something like 50 basis points. And that is an incentive for stasis. That is an incentive to do nothing. And the, so if I, if I was involved, if I was running the Fed the, or the ECB, the first thing I do, I go to zero. And in fact, I would probably charge rent. I say, if you put your money on my balance sheet, you're going to have to pay 50 basis points. It is negative. In, in, in Europe, it is negative. Oh, it is in negative. Europe, okay. Oh, so yeah. they're doing that. And that in, in the US? Uh, no, but, but uh, for some reason, Trump is saying, oh, in Europe, they're doing it. That seems to work. Not. <laughs> Let's do it in America because the Fed is is heading in this direction, and I agree with Raúl that you know I, I mean I've been saying bond yields are going down and they're going to be zero and they're maybe even going to be negative, but also Fed rates we're heading towards negative territory. But what does this mean? This is actually bad, and the ECB has been doing this as part of its goal to destroy the community banks because they want the Sovietization, they want to drive out banks, then introduce central bank digital currency. Lagarde has announced it. Uh, we, we we need to do this. And then they're the monopoly and they're even more powerful. I mean, can you believe it? The ECB is already so powerful, but they, they're still going for the last power grab. They want to be the only bank around by bankrupting the rest of the banking system. Now, this crisis has the risk of accelerating this trend if we don't work against this. So we, we need to act now and create okay. more banks. I wanted to ask if there are any accentuating circumstances where you ah, can le- yeah. legitimize a central bank fostering a strategy onto its commercial banks to generate asset price growth, to create that magic feel-good module, which then would expand the legitimate pool of productive investment, which would ultimately take the economy on. And so Machiavellian, can I kind of inflate, because you know, I've got money supply and I've got to determine how much I fund speculatively to productive and presently, the productive feels kind of small. And so yeah. why not push the gas speculatively, generate you know, GDP growth last year in the States was, was really good, um, and keep that on. And then that will inflate. Yes, it will inflate asset prices, but it will inflate um, inv- productive investment projects. And then I just take the gas off one side and I start pushing, pushing into productive investment opportunities. I think, you, I mean, you've described this really well. I think this is the sort of temptation that central banks probably always feel. And, and certainly in the, in the last two decades, uh, and certainly very much after 2008. And it's, it's probably the underlying justification for what they're doing. Well, we need to somehow kickstart this. So we need to get the juices flowing. And yes, and, and of course, economics textbooks do the rest because they, they don't really, well, they don't, uh, recognize bank credit creation. They think banks are just financial intermediaries and the stock market is key and so on. But actually fundraising for companies in the stock market is, is limited. It's mostly secondary trading of already issued uh, stocks. So there's a bit of a misunderstanding there. But the official story is, you know, all these markets and asset transactions, somehow that is fueling investment, real investment. 
even though really, you know, these are asset transactions and changes in ownership rights, which are not even part of GDP. That's the reality um, because they don't add value. And that's well, why here's a contentious point to you, but, you know, we created um, Google, um, Facebook and, you know, all these these new companies all came out or were part of the process of the bubble in technology, you know, at, at the turn of the century. So did that, was that bubble yes. worth it, given the legacy seems to be in these platforms, which then went on to impose an enormous economic rent on the rest of the world? Yes, yes. Well, uh, and I think that, you know, there is there is this story under um, behind it that um, certainly Greenspan seemed to have felt it's, it's all worth it. And, you know, by injecting all this money, he can fuel the right type of things. The trouble is it will not just support the productive investments. And it's very hard to then taper off at the right time and ensure that it just doesn't become an overblown asset bubble. And that's almost impossible, I would say, which is why that's, you know, that's the trouble that central bankers therefore always feel tempted and almost always fall for this temptation. I think you're wise to say impossible, but uh, the, the, 2008, you know, some of us kind of profited from it because we could, like, and you could see it, et cetera. But it wasn't the, just the credit mechanism being fully on, like, foot to the ped, uh, pedal to the floor. Um, it was the fact that the, the asset price that had become inflated was the U.S. housing stock, which was like 10x GDP or whatever, the, a, a very high X GDP. And therefore, if you got a contraction in the asset price, it would wipe out the economy. Like GDP would just go down hard. And prior to the virus coup d'etat, whilst we'd had this new all-time highs in financial markets and asset price inflation, there was no existential real threat to, to GDP because there was no explicit asset market which was so big that if it had a reversal, it would knock us over. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think so. And, and certainly this, the, the temptation was there and risks were taken in, in creating this asset bubble because there was this argument to justify it. Um, but in, in reality, um, it was clear. I mean, certainly uh, by the end of last year, it looked like such an, uh, such an asset bubble. If we didn't have the COVID crisis, I think it would eventually also have to um, would have to crash. But why? Okay? That's the point. I don't. I don't understand that. I want to push back. Well, you, why you was it such an asset? You can conti- you can continue it, but only if you continue to play this game of ever increasing credit creation for asset transactions, ever more, ever more, ever more. And my point and, is, why not until you reach a, a, a kind of tipping point where you say, well, this asset, like student loans or, or car loans or mortgages to households, it's reached a point of X times GDP that I, I can't push it anymore because, yes, you know, yeah. unintended consequences. If it comes against me, I wipe out all my gain. And we like, so you say unsustainable asset bubble. I didn't see the Achilles heel and therefore it wasn't unsustainable at the end of last year? Well, certainly, as you mentioned, when, when uh, the, the yields and the returns and the earnings become so small and, and the gains are all in the capital gains, then you know there becomes a point when it doesn't make sense. So you push beyond that. It doesn't make sense, but you know it's a game. It's going up. Everyone is investing. It continues. 
I think the risk there is, particularly for insiders and central bankers, central planners, is that something else that they, are, they don't control could trigger the collapse. And maybe they don't like that. So they'd rather, and, and maybe this is what happened in, in February, March, but, but sometimes maybe they'd rather trigger it themselves so then they can have you know, somewhat control over the collapse and benefit from it. But again, the you so never make yourself. My point is, if I'm running the thing, all right, I've got to be the chief, right? Um, I've got to be Tony Soprano, and you just, you will never dare take me on. Yeah, that that's the role of a central bank. You should always be Tony Soprano, okay? And and so, you can never. So you 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 pump, you pump, you pump, but you can never allow an asset price to become such a large component of GDP, like a, a factor of GDP, such that it pimps you. You know, you got to pimp everything else. Forgive me for my colorful language. Um, and again, I, I don't see, like in the absence of the coup d'etat, I don't see, and I didn't see the vulnerability to the omnipresent Fed. So Richard, I, I, I definitely picked up a lot of flack over the years because I, I, I developed an ideology. I, I won in 2008 and I lost 2009, 10, 11, 12. I became curmudgeonly. And I started saying morally the Fed was wrong. And I started quoting Andrew Mellon and we should be purging the rottenness from the system. Felt very Calvinistic and I was very comfortable. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't my role. Um, and then when I reset it, I, I thought to myself, if we had pursued the hard money agenda, the US post-2008 would have kind of gone down like potentially 10%. We'd have had bank closures. We'd have had un unemployment of 20%. And I, and I said to myself, you know what? Anything is better than that. And these guys are, they're not hedge fund superstars. They're, they're not paid like millions and millions of dollars. And they're judged by history. And so they're cautious. And yet they took brave decisions which could have backfired. And maybe are backfiring, but you know they were willing uh, to put their head above and to be knocked down. And, and they've been the architects, I think, of, of the longest U.S. expansion. So I want to say what the Fed has done. I want to say that you are, I think, the you were the first person to coin this term quantitative easing. I want to say it's been a source of good. And I know that's going to piss off everyone listening to this. Do you agree or disagree? I have to agree with you. But I there's some caveats, as you might expect. Um, the, the QE I proposed originally in 1995, published in the Nikkei, um, was literally um, credit creation for GDP transactions. That was the definition of QE. And I called it quantitative easing. The editor at the Nikkei said, I can't have credit creation in the title. I must think of another name, which gives the idea that it's different from standard monetary policy. But it's, you know, and, and of course, what I'm proposing is about the quantity. So I use quantitative and then easing is the Japanese way of having expansionary uh, policy expressed. Anyway, so with that definition in mind, the Bank of Japan wanted to disprove QE. For years, they said that's nonsense. Then in 2001, they announced we're adopting QE, but they went for the, the straight, traditional, monetarist, high-powered money expansion, which even my original article, I said, is not going to work because if you increase banks' reserves by how many times, that's not going to do the economy any good. You need credit creation. Um, so they tried this from 2001 to 2006, high-powered money expansion. Didn't, it didn't work, so they said, oh, now we've told you, we've shown you, as we told you, it just doesn't work, so we stop it, and they stopped it. But then when the 2008 crisis hit, 
um, from 2009, the Bank of England said, we're going to do QE now. Um, and they followed more or less in, in the Japanese footsteps. Now, in America, Bernanke came out and said, we're going to do something that may look similar to QE. But I, Bernanke said, want to call this something else. I don't want to use it, call it QE, because that QE didn't really work. I mean, he was polite about it when he said this. There was a speech at the LSE 2009, January. And he almost said what I've been saying, namely, they did this wrongly because just high power of money expansion that doesn't do any good. We need to expand credit. He said that. And therefore, he said, I'd really like to call this some kind of credit easing. Well, that's exactly the quantitative easing I meant. And he also, and of course, Bernanke, remember, in the 90s, he was very much interested in Japan. And he was part of these debates we had about Japan and the policies and what needs to be doing with the crisis. So he's very much familiar. And I think he knows my, my work and the credit creation expansion um, definition of QE. And he was the only central banker who did at least half of what I recommended. The one half being you've got to help the banks and you can do this best by purchasing their non-performing assets, take it off their balance sheets, move it to the central bank where they can't do any harm. And then the banks can create credit again. And that's what he did. And that's why the Fed balance sheet was quadrupled in a, in, a, in a month. And bank credit was the first in America to recover already one and a half years later, four or 5% bank credit growth. And as you mentioned, you know, then of course you get your economic growth. Of course, it wasn't perfect. It was still biased towards big players and Main Street didn't do so well um, as it could have if they had, if they had not at the same time had this policy of reducing the number of banks, you see, which I mentioned earlier. So they should, they should have abandoned that policy and actually said, no, let's create more community banks and let's help them to push the money. And then it would have been even better. But I agree with you, you know, given circumstances, um, the Fed actually was with the central bank that did best. And because it did the best proper definition of QE, it followed, it was closely uh, closest to my definition of QE by expanding bank credit creation, helping banks. I'm glad that's at the end, because if we had that at the beginning, everyone would be switching off in disgust as the two of us agree <laughs> that the Fed, the Fed scorecard is, is really, it's a heck of a lot better than the alternative. Yeah. And, and again, the legitimate point to all of you haters out there is despite all of that, what seems like you say again, this, this illusion of, of money, money supply growth. Yeah. The reality is quite different. Um, we don't, again, let me just reiterate, we don't have a specific asset bubble within the US economy, which is of such a magnitude that if it reversed, it would take us down. And I think that's why we've had to adopt, invent, whatever, this, this crazy virus scenario that we find ourselves in. But okay, okay. Now, negative interest rates. I have two points. Um, when you're when you're doing contentious, controversial things and you're a bureaucrat, it's kind of better to hide your tracks. Um, and I'm kind of making this up and I, again, may make an ass of myself, but um, is it not better simply to make that technical change where like you were saying the ECB, I think is minus 10 or what is the negative rate that they charge for commercial banks depositing? I don't know. It's, some, I mean, it's something very small, but why not make but it? But it's negative. 
why not make it? But why not? Why the, the first step is why is the Fed not there? The Fed should be negative, right? Because no one, like if you if you do yeah, the but, explicit negative rates, yeah. then every, savers are up in arms. But, but if Hugh, you're actually Hugh. coming through and hitting banks, everyone loves you. It's a populist measure. Hugh, but it's nonsense. It is nonsense because it's based on this idea that the central, the reserves that banks have at the central bank is the same money that the banks can take from the central bank and lend out. But that's not true. Oh, reserves the central it, banks cannot be lent out. No, indeed. And that's why it has to be punished. You have to say, listen, my number one but objective no, no, no. here. No, Hugh, okay. there's a misunderstanding. The reserves that banks have at the central bank is 100% determined by the central bank. Ah, because I was thinking because it's special so, money. It's not real money. It's not you know. It's a different type of money supply, which is it's it's completely isolated from the rest of the system. It's an, a circuit between the central bank and the banks, and it's credits that the central bank gives the banks on its balance sheet. Okay, but that money can never leave, so that never helps the economy. Therefore, therefore, and this this tells you that the central bankers who know this jolly well. They're misrepresenting this to the public. The public doesn't know this, and you can't expect the public to understand this. But the central bankers, also the ECB in particular, they've been saying, we, we do this negative interest rate policy to punish the banks, as you say, and encourage them, force them to, to lend this money out. But this money cannot be lent out. And so instead of encouraging the banks to lend more, it's simply a tax on banks. And if the banks are already squeezed by um, the the interest rate scenario they've created, you know, short rates being very low, long rates being pushed down by the QE purchases, and you have a flat yield curve or negative yield curve. The banks are not earning money. You are actually really hurting them. Then you put a tax on them. You are driving them out of business. And that's why hundreds and hundreds of banks in the eurozone have given up. They're forced to merge. They disappear. That's very quiet. People don't talk about it. But you get a more concentrated banking system, and that is what's happening. And this is now going to accelerate, I fear, under this, this crisis. And therefore, we'll end up with the Sovietization of the banking system. Ultimately, the central bank is going to survive only. And at this moment, where the banks are so much being squeezed from all sides, you have the regulatory layer, they have Basel III, Basel IV now coming up, which increases costs for banks again. Um, at this moment, where the banks are being squeezed from all sides, and they really can't make money much, um, and they, they don't know what to do, they're forced to merge. That's when the central banks announce, oh, we're going to actually now compete with the banks. And the banks, it's the regulators saying this and doing this. They can't complain about this. It's unfair competition. You know, they have no chance if the regulator suddenly competes with a regulated. Um, and this is what, what we are facing. So that tells you that really it's because the central banks know this very well. It cannot be by accident. That is their intention. And very much, you know. Uh, Hugh, when you say earlier, you know, it sounds a bit like a conspiracy theory. Well, I'm just very much uh, with Paul Samuelson on this one. He proposed in 1937, I think, one of his first pieces in economics, the theory of revealed preference. And it says that um, you shouldn't just believe what people tell you because maybe they're confused themselves or they may tell you what they like to do, but actually that's not really what they're doing. So cut through that um, and actually watch what they do. And that's become when I started to monitor central banks and I'm monitoring 38 central banks now looking at their liquidity with my liquidity watch report. Um, as I do that, my, my fundamental motto is don't listen 
what to what they say, watch what they're doing. And that reveals their true intention because they're in, in control in most countries, very independent. They can do what they want. And if they do that, we have to assume that's what they want. And so the central banks seem to want to put banks under pressure and make it worse through negative interest rates and then even outcompete them on their own home turf by opening accounts um, for the public with the central bank. That's the reality. So I seem to be like out of my depth a little bit the, in terms of how big are those reserves, commercial bank reserves at the central bank, in terms of has there been a structural shift like pre-2008, post-2008? Is it a lot more money parked on the, the central bank's balance sheet by diktat? Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and the same, you know, this, we saw this in Japan first. So in Japan also then these reserves increased tremendously. Now let's look at currently the Fed. And it's actually quite relevant because the Fed has just announced that they're going to reduce, well, they have reduced now the reserve requirement to zero. And again, it tells you they're just playing with us because this is like misinformation. What does the that mean? The reserve requirement is zero for those. It's irrelevant. It's now zero, but it's it has but what to does be it mean? What does that mean? Like, so if you know nothing about banking, what does that mean? Uh, the reserve requirement. Well, in the old days, we had the fraction reserve theory of banking, which in my empirical papers I disproved. Um, it's you know, it's, it's a wrong description. Actually, Samuelson, that's one of the things I disagree with him, um, did that wrongly. The money multiplier model is actually not true, but it uses the re reserve requirement. The inverse of the reserve requirement is the money multiplier. Um, essentially, it's a requirement for the banks to hold certain amounts of money as reserve with the central bank. But the okay, truth so if you go to zero, it, does that mean you've gone to an infinite money, money multiplier? Yes, but the money multiplier is nonsense. Because in reality, the central bank controls how much money is on, you know, it has from the banks in, in reserves. It creates for the so banks. There is it, yeah. But again, and so it, therefore, in practice, reserve requirements were never used for monetary policy, only in textbooks. But especially, I mean, look at the current situation when the reserves are so large, we have huge excess reserves. And then they say, oh, the reserve requirement was never a restriction anyway, it's fairly low. And the the actual excess reserves are much larger. And they're now saying we abolish the reserve requirement. It's just like it's misleading because it's irrelevant anyway. But I you don't abolish understand it because it doesn't because matter. Are you telling me that the central bank sponsored the buildup of commercial bank reserves on the at the at the yes. center? Or are you because my feeling was it was the risk aversion of the commercial banks that park the money with the central bank. But the central bank reserves, i.e. banks reserves at the central bank, they cannot be lent out. They cannot sure. be lent out. They will always stay on the balance sheet of the central bank. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if we can now take this money, the bank takes the money and then gives you a loan. But that you, doesn't work. I, I, um, I am JP Morgan and I've got a trillion dollars of loans outstanding in America, let's say, okay? Um, is the requirement of that showing I've got a post, you know, um, $100 billion with the central bank? Not anymore, because it's now because zero. It's gone to zero. Okay. And before there was a tiny amount. I mean, usually in the last, I don't know, 30 years, it's been around 1% uh, needs to be in reserves. In those countries that still had reserve requirements. The UK, Sweden, they already gave up reserve requirements okay. um, over 10 years so ago. Okay, but there's no bureaucratic mandate imposing the need to post reserves with the central bank. And yet the banks have got record amounts of reserves at the central bank. So surely that's got nothing to do with 
an ideology of the central bank and has got everything to do with the risk aversion of the private sector. So you have to ask the question, how do these reserves get onto the bank, uh, the central bank balance sheet? Tell me. Because of actions by the central bank, the central bank can control them, it can increase them and reduce them, and the banks essentially can't do anything about it. In aggregate, what, can, what banks can do, and perhaps I should point this out so that there's no misunderstanding, um, banks can shift reserves from bank A to bank B. So, because they all have accounts with the, the central bank. market and so all. So the, the distribution of these reserves can change, but I've been talking about the aggregate number the aggregate of bank reserves with the central bank, that one, the banks in aggregate can nothing, you know, they can do nothing about it. It's it's entirely up to the Federal Reserve. It's up to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve has pushed it to zero. It's saying, take your money. We, we don't want your money. Take it, take it. No. A sort of a positive interpretation, um, benevolent interpretation might be the Fed is trying to give strong hints to the banks, please lend more, create more credit. When banks lend, they create credit out of nothing and they don't need reserves for that because they don't lend reserves. Um, and so it's like a hint, why don't you create more money? But they don't even need the reserves for that and the Fed can just tell them, you know. Okay, so then finally... But, but actually, sorry, one more thing. The, if the Fed really wanted to encourage the lending, what it needs to do is something else. What would help the banks? A positive yield curve, not a flat or negative yield curve. Because you need the long-term interest rates to be higher. You need to earn money. The banks live on the margin. That's how banking works. And that explains why the standard interest rate policy doesn't actually work. You know, I did, I did the first empirical study of the, the one thing that all economists agree on, whether they're classical economist David Ricardo 200 years ago or neoclassical, new classical economists or even radical economists, Austrian economists. Uh, they all agree on one thing. Keynesian economists, post-Keynesians, they all agree on one thing. If you lower interest rates, then you get higher economic growth. And if you raise interest rates, you get lower economic growth. This has been repeated in economics. In fact, we should say equilibrium economics, because they all believe in equilibrium, for the last 200 years. And I've tested this. And of course, central banks use this for their policy. We lower rates even to zero, even to negative territory, because it's going to create more growth. Well, what's the empirical evidence for this? And there's never been a study. Can you believe it? For 200 years, they've all been saying this, and they've all avoided doing an empirical study. So I did the first. It's published uh, in, um, in 2018. Uh, it took me years to find a journal because they all hated this empirical study. Very carefully done with a great econometrician. Um, there's a second paper coming up on this with more countries. We've got in this one uh, the US, the UK, Germany and Japan for half a century. The conclusion is interest rates. So interest rates, the official story is, should be negatively correlated with growth, low rates, high growth, high rates, low growth. And the statistical causation should be from interest rates to growth. There needs to be some kind of impact that rates have on growth, right? And the conclusion of the research is interest rates and economic growth are positively correlated and the causation runs if anything, then from growth to interest rates. And that's why interest rate policy is useless. It's not the price of money that matters, it's the quantity of money, quantity of credit creation. And that's why lowering rates into negative territory is only gonna hurt the banks and do the opposite. So if you wanna help the banks, what you need to do is steepen the yield curve. So for that, you need to raise rates. Higher rates are consistent with higher growth. We have empirical evidence with regard to negative interest rates. 
and at best it is mixed at very best it is mixed yeah that's generous. Yeah, very generous exactly yeah, very, very generous. um but then you could say it's very mixed because it's deemed to be in terms of social democracy is a very, very contentious thing that could really rip apart the debtor-creditor thing when because you the fear is you you, you unravel the banking the banking sector, yeah? Because your depositors are being are being charged a rent and they pull money. And you'd rather have the money declared than under the bed. Okay. Um, so my point is perhaps it gets a bad rap owing to the lack of ambition by those who pursued it. And really if we if we step negative, not negative 0.25, but we went negative 3%, you would then have your steepness in yield curve. Is that feasible? Yes, you can steepen the yield curve by pushing the short end into hugely negative territory. But I think that's not really helpful for the banks. So we need the yield curve to be in positive territory and positively shaped. That's what the banks need. They need a positive margin. Um, and... Um, therefore, you know, I don't think negative interest rates will work. Listen, I'm, I'm going to end it there. Um, this is, for me, this has been fabulous. You know, I sit there and, and normally I, I, I only have Google to ask questions. I am asking questions all the time. Now I have you and it's like you're the font of all knowledge. So thank you for your time, Richard. I hope Thanks, this happens great. again. Thank you very much. It was great to speak with you. Thanks so much. And I hope we can do this again and continue our conversation. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.